All right, if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and today we'll be reading from verses 17 uh, to 27. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the daughters of the uns- lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Well, when I was dating Stephanie, I felt like I wanted to marry her uh, very early on, probably after about the third date. Then after about three months, I went and got an engagement ring. But after I got that engagement ring, I started to get nervous about the decision and wanted to make sure that it was the right decision. I worried that maybe I was rushing into it too much, and I didn't want to make a hasty decision. So I spent the next nine months agonizing over that decision, even though I all along really wanted to marry her. And so I waited nine months, and then I got to a point where I'd planned to propose on the on the anniversary one year from our first date on October 3rd. And even though, like I said, I knew that I wanted to marry her, even though I had other people in my life who were speaking the truth to me, who were saying, yeah, this seems to be of God, even though God had spoken to me through his word, even though circumstances had pointed and confirmed this decision, I was still scared about making this decision. So finally, I worked up the courage to do it. And so I asked her to marry me on October 3rd. And then after that, we started talking about planning a wedding. And she made a statement, something about how she kind of had always wanted a fall wedding. She said, what about October of the following year? And I looked at her like, what? Like, when I proposed, I was like signing up, like, let's do this. I'm like, a year? Like, I can't wait a year to get married. I, I've been agonizing over this decision. I've finally come to a point where I want to make this commitment. Let's just do it. Let's just do this and start on our lives. And so she explained how there's a lot to be involved in planning a wedding. First of all, we didn't even have a place to live at this point. I was living with my parents. Stephanie was living with her brother at the time. We didn't have a place to live. Apart from planning, you know, a location, sending out invitations, all the things that are involved with the wedding. Uh, 
I was like, oh, okay. Uh, like, well, how about like Christmas, which was a couple months away? She's like, I, I, I don't think we can do it that quickly. And so finally we settled on May being the date, which would provide us some time to find a place to live and get the wedding ready. And so we compromised on that. But for me, when I came to that engagement, I was like, all right, I signed up. Let's start our lives. And I didn't care about the preparation. I didn't care about the steps that it would take to get there. I didn't care as much about finding a place to live and preparing what that wedding would look like. I was ready to start our new lives and skip over all that preparation. I think that sometimes as believers in Jesus, we do a similar thing where we want to skip over sadness and suffering and sorrow and we want to just get to the victory. We want to skip over the negative parts of our life and get to the victory. And for anyone dealing with sadness, sometimes our collective message as the evangelical church is, don't worry, be happy. The victory is ours in Christ. You don't have to be sad anymore. Basically, get over it. Now, all of that is true. We have victory in Christ. We don't have to live in sadness and darkness anymore. But just because of that reality, just because we know what God is doing, doesn't mean that we don't experience pain in the situations that we're in. Pastor John Piper gives an illustration talking about the sovereignty of God. And have you ever met, uh, seen a mosaic before where, you know, there'll be a, a big picture and then inside of that big picture will be little squares with individual pictures. And that big picture is made up of those individual pictures. And I don't know how they do that graphically. I think it's amazing. But somehow they do that where the little pictures make a big picture. Now you think about that and think about those little squares It's different events in your life. Some of them are good events. Some of them are neutral. So one square might be the day that you were born. One square might be the day you graduate from high school. One square might be the day that you get married. One square might be the day that you have your first child. One square might be the day that you get your first house. The day that you meet your best friend. The day that you get a new job. But then there's other squares, and those other squares are profoundly negative. The day that your friends bullied you. The time when your parents abused you. The day that you got divorced. The day that you lost your job. The day you were diagnosed with a debilitating illness. And so there's good squares and those, there's bad squares. And in that framework, we know that through all of that, God is creating a story. He's creating a beautiful picture in our life that he's working all things, according to Romans 8, for his good and for, uh, for our good and for his glory. And so he's painting a picture through those different squares. But when we're in those individual squares, sometimes it's hard to see the big picture. We know it's there. We know there's a big picture. We know God is creating a story. But we're in that square and we're dealing with sadness and sorrow. And sometimes as a church, we're like, oh, just get out of the square. Just look at the picture. Which is in a sense true, but it doesn't make the square go away. 
We still need to process and deal with that sorrow in the square or we'll never be able to see the full picture. Sometimes people can make the opposite error and that's what maybe we kind of react against is where people can just kind of live in that square forever. Live in the darkness forever, not ever come out of it or see that God is creating something bigger in our lives. But I think as the church, we often try to get people out of that square as quickly as possible and not allow them to process that grief and process that sadness. And as a church, we kind of don't know how to deal with the language of sorrow or the language of lament. Now, if you look in the Scriptures at many of the Psalms in the Old Testament, you'll see Psalms of joy and uh, exaltation, but you'll also see Psalms where the psalmist just cries out to God and is just broken. And you look at our modern worship songs, and while there are some exceptions, many of those songs, or most of those songs that we sang, are songs of exaltation, songs of victory. And we don't have many songs, if any, that are songs of lament or sorrow that don't have some kind of uh, hint of victory. And so we don't know how to deal with sorrow. We don't know how to deal with those squares in our life that are difficult. A few years ago, Pastor Mark Vrogop lost a child, and through that experience he learned that he didn't really know how to grieve well. He says this, Looking back, I can now see that the missing element in our grief was a familiarity with lament, heartfelt and honest talking to God through the struggles of life. Lament was a new language for us too. I didn't know what to call it at the time, even though I was a seminary trained pastor. Somehow I missed the fact that laments are found in more than a third of the biblical Psalms. Lament just wasn't familiar terrain to me, and my pain made that gap plain. Professor William Bellinger of Baylor University says this, We live in a culture that seeks to deny pain and death. The Psalms, in contrast, saw long before there were therapists that the way to hope is through fear. The way to real joy is through depression. The way to loving one's enemies is through hostility, not around these realities, but through them. Bellinger continues, Denial leads to holding grudges, fear, and festering wounds. That is not faith. Rather, speaking boldly to the one who can act, asking God to embrace pain. That is the vision of faith in these texts. So yes, the square is not the full picture, but we need to deal with the trauma and the suffering in the square if we're going to see the big picture. I think today all of us are living in a square of suffering or sadness to one degree or another. The pain of not seeing friends and loved ones. The pain of dealing with illness and health difficulties. The pain of not being able to go out to eat or go to a movie or do the things that we want to do. Today is Mother Day, Mother's Day and it's maybe especially hard for some of us today. Maybe this is the first year that you have Mother's Day without your mother. Maybe you're sad because you're not able to see your mother or your grandmother today. Maybe there are some who are listening today who have been struggling to become a mother, and yet you have been unable to conceive. So today, as many of us, if not 
all of us are in that square of suffering and sadness and there's this heaviness that's over us as a country, I think there are three, three truths that we can remember as the people of God as we walk through this time of suffering. The first thing we learn in Scripture is that it's okay to be sad. See, sometimes Christians can beat themselves up when they're grieving. And maybe you've thought to yourself, well, if I was a good Christian, if I had enough faith, then I wouldn't be sad. Then I wouldn't be struggling like I'm struggling with this kind of grief. But the Scriptures teach us that sadness and sorrow is a part of our humanity. Living in this fallen world that we're living in. And we see in this passage that David is devastated over the death of Saul and Jonathan and the fact that the kingdom has fallen to such a low state. Saul was the hope of Israel. He was the king who was to lead Israel out in battle, and now he lies dead on a battlefield. David speaks in verse 21 about the Saul's shield not being oiled. Saul, the anointed one of God, had the shield. The shield uh, was made of leather or had a leather coating on it and oil would be put on it so the leather didn't crack. And as the king, he should have had the best shield in all of the country. It should have been well taken care of and yet now it's languishing on the battlefield. In verse 26, he talks about the loss of his relationship with Jonathan. He had this close friendship with, with Saul's son, Jonathan, and how he longs to go back to that. And, Saul, and, and we see that David grieves the loss of the way things were. He wants things to go back to the way things were. He misses the relationships that he had. Maybe some of us feel similar grief today. We long for the way things used to be. And if that's the case, we're in good company. Because not only did David grieve, we saw Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. We see Abraham grieved the loss of his wife. We see uh, Joseph weeped when he saw his brothers. Jacob was filled with grief when he thought that Joseph was dead. We see that, uh, that Jesus himself wept when his, when his friend died. Even though he knew that he was going to be raised from the dead, he weeped when he saw the pain that death had caused and the fact that his, his friend had died. He was filled with sorrow. We see that the heroes of the faith, many people whom we read and who we quote, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, John Calvin, Martin Luther, all of them struggled with bouts of depression. We see that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, when we're dealing with grief and sadness, I, as believers, I don't think it's helpful to add guilt on top of that. When we're in that square of suffering, it is normal to experience grief. It's normal to experience sadness. And we need time to process that and deal with that. And adding guilt upon that sadness, I don't believe is helpful because we see in the Scriptures that nearly all of the heroes of faith, all of them really, went through times of suffering and sorrow. We see second in this passage that we're looking at today that sadness is really rarely simple. In the beginning of chapter 1, we see that a man who's described as a Malachite comes to David and tells him that he's killed Saul. Now we know from the book of 1 Samuel, at the end of 1 Samuel, it says that Saul killed himself. 
Now this Amalekite probably saw Saul's body or saw him killing himself and thought, hey, I got an idea. If I tell David that I killed him, I'm going to be rewarded and gain favor from David. And so he comes and makes up this story about how he's the one who killed Saul. But he doesn't know what he's in for. David, in response, scolds him. Says, how dare you kill God's anointed? And he puts this Amalekite to death. And then we see in this lament that we read that he's devastated over the loss of Saul and Jonathan. Now, to me, this doesn't make any sense. Now, I understand that he would be sad about his friend passing away. But why Saul? I mean, he's been on the run for so long because Saul has been trying to murder him. Saul hates him. From all that we see in the Scripture in 1 Samuel, Saul was a really, really terrible person. And yet David is grieved now that Saul has died. He refers to Saul as beloved. He talks about the good things that Saul had done. He talks to the daughters of Israel and says that they should weep because Saul was the one who gave them the things that they had. Talks about Saul and Jonathan's military prowess. And this shows us that sadness is rarely simple. It's rarely simple. And we don't know exactly what David was thinking, but I imagine he was kind of conflicted. I imagine he was relieved that he wasn't on the run from Saul anymore, but he was also sad because of what that relationship had become. He was sad of how how Saul had turned his back on God. He was sad how Saul hated him so much. And so he was filled with grief and sadness, even though he was also maybe a little bit relieved as well. See, sadness is often like that. It's rarely simple. Sometimes the things that we think will sadden us or devastate us, we're able to deal with just fine. And then the things that we don't see coming are sometimes the things that bring us to our knees and cause us to be filled with grief. Sometimes we don't even really understand fully why we're feeling what we're feeling. And sometimes as we're grieving, uh, our grief is mixed with both sadness and joy. There's an old story about uh, three men who were crossing a desert at nighttime, and they came upon this dry creek bed. And when they came upon this dry creek bed, they heard a voice that said to them, uh, pick up as many pebbles as you can. And in the morning, you'll be both happy and sad. So they picked up as many pebbles as they could, put them in their pockets, and then they kept riding on. And then when the sun started to come up and daybreak, daybreak happened, they reached into their pockets and they pulled out those little stones and they found that those stones had become precious metals. Precious stones. Diamonds, rubies. And they were joyful that they had these precious stones, but they were also sad that they hadn't picked up more. And so they were filled with joy, but also with sadness. And the same thing is true with grief. It's rarely simple. We might be joyful that our loved one is no longer suffering, but sad and devastated that they're no longer with us. 
We might be joyful that we have more time to spend with our families and more time to work on projects around the house, but we're devastated that we can't spend as much time with friends and do the things that we normally would do. Grief is like that. Grief also doesn't answer to logical arguments. You can't tell a person who's sad, just get over it, don't be sad. You don't have a reason to be sad. Rarely that works. Because it's not completely a logical decision. It's an emotional reaction. And yes, logic can influence it, but that person has to process that themselves. You can't just say, oh, don't worry about it, be happy. You don't have a reason to be sad. That's not going to work. Because sadness, grief is really simple. We see, third, that sadness can deepen our relationship with God like nothing else can. See, one of the hardest things about dealing with grief and suffering is that nobody can really understand the suffering that we're going through. Even if they've gone through similar things, each of us is unique and each of us has unique, have unique circumstances. And nobody can really understand the suffering that's going through your heart. That's going through my heart. Even well-meaning loved ones and friends who have our best interests in mind, they can't fully understand and comprehend what we're going through. One of the clearest issues where this comes up is with mental illness or addiction. You know, if someone's struggling with mental illness or addiction, someone from the outside who's never really struggled with that, they might just say, well, why don't you just give up your drug addiction? Why don't you just stop drinking? But they don't understand the compulsion and they don't understand the pain that you're going through when you've tried to give that up in the past. Or if you're dealing with mental illness and someone tells you, you just got to stop worrying. You just got to give that up. You just got to stop these compulsions. You just got to stop doing this and stop doing that. But they don't understand the pain and the anxiety that you're feeling and why you do what you do. Even people with the best intentions don't know what you're going through fully. You know, you see this often when people go through tragedy. You know, lose someone that's very close to them. You know, at the maybe the funeral or the calling hours, everybody kind of rallies around that person. But then after that, sometimes those people kind of disappear because they don't know how to handle that person. They don't know how to handle that grief. They don't know, it's not that they don't care, it's that they're afraid of doing the wrong thing. They don't know how to react or how to respond to such sorrow. Garrison Keller once said this, grief always goes on longer than your friends expect it and is stronger than they can appreciate. And this is just the nature of human experience that we can't fully understand what other people are going through. If we're going through a similar thing, maybe we can understand a part of what they're going through. We don't know fully what they're going through. But the good news is, is that Jesus does. Jesus knows exactly what we're going through. In the scriptures it says that Jesus was one who was acquainted with grief. Psalm 53, 3-4 says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus was acquainted with sufferings. And he's also 
able to comfort us in times of weakness. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says this, Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, as we walk with God through pain and suffering, it's an opportunity for our relationship with Him to grow and get stronger. You know, I think back on you know, the relationships I have in my life, and those relationships, of course, are formed in good times, but I think they're cemented even stronger in bad times. I think of times when I was dealing with spiritual warfare and struggles and my wife sitting by my side and praying with me. I, I think about when I was a child, I was about eight years old and my family was in a severe car accident in Philadelphia. We were, you know, grew up in Buffalo, but we went to Philadelphia on vacation. And my whole family was injured pretty badly. My mom was completely incapacitated, basically. My, my brother had severe head injury. My dad had a severe head injury, a knee injury. And one day, after I had surgery, I had some uh, surgery on my intestines, and the nurses were unable to get me to walk because I was in such pain. And they called up the other hospital where my parents were, Somehow they got a hold of my dad. And somehow my dad, even though he wasn't really in his right mind, didn't even, hardly knew what he was doing, he talked them into releasing him from the hospital. He got a cab, came over to the hospital that I was at, and he helped me walk around the halls of the hospital. I think about my extended family, my uncles and aunts and grandparents who drove through the night to get to Philadelphia who were there to cheer me on as I was going into surgery. I think about the times in my life when I was dealing with struggles and difficulties and my mom prayed for me. And the encouragement that I got from knowing that even sometimes when I was sleeping, even in the middle of the night, she was praying for me and I was on her heart. Those moments even though those people didn't understand fully what I was going through, those moments helped cement those relationships. Those moments deepened those relationships in a way that just having a good, good time could never do. Now, even though they didn't fully understand our, what I was going through, it still deepened that relationship. How much more... When God understands, when Jesus understands what we're going through, how much more will that deepen our relationship with Him? Because He can walk with us through that suffering, and He knows exactly what we're experiencing. Sometimes people ask, where is God in the suffering? The answer is, He's with those who trust in Him. He's right with those who trust in Him, walking with them every step of the way and knowing fully what they're going through and available to comfort them every step of the way. Philip Yancey's wife uh, leads a weekly Christian circle for uh, people at a nursing home. And there was this one lady who worked there who kind of uh, was the leader of the group in conjunction with his wife. And 
they had this lady whose name was Betsy. And Betsy had severe Alzheimer's. And every time that this lady, this, this worker there, Janet, would encounter Betsy, they would introduce themselves to one another. And each time, Betsy would forget that they had met before. One day, Janet realized that Betsy was still able to read. Even though she had lost many of her faculties, she was still able to read. And on a good day, she was able to read a passage uh, pretty clearly and with a strong voice. But one day, the seniors were all together and they decided that they were going to read the lyrics of the Old Rugged Cross. And so Janet asked Betsy, would you be able to read the lyrics for us? And so she started to read the lyrics and she said, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. But then she started to get agitated and she said, I can't go on. It's too sad. It's too sad. So Janet said to her, okay, if you don't want to go on, you don't have to go on. But then she started again. She said, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. But once again, a tear came to her eye and she said, I can't go on. I can't go on. Then forgetting that this happened at all, she started again and the same thing happened. Finally, Betsy seemed to settle down. And Janet led her to her elevator and back to her room. To Janet's amazement, as they, as they were headed to her room, Betsy started to sing the song from memory. It was a little bit garbled, but you could hear what the song was. And so she started to sing on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And once again she was overwhelmed with emotion and started crying. The tears came down her face. But this time she continued resolutely. This time she continued with a determination in her voice as she gained strength as she sang. And she continued and said, I not love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Yancey says this, somewhere in that tattered mind, damaged neurons had tapped into a network of old connections to resurrect a, a, a pattern of meaning for Betsy. In her confusion, two things only stood out. Suffering and shame. Those two words summarize the human condition. The condition she lives in every day of her sad life. Who knows more suffering and shame than Betsy? For her, the hymn answered that question. Jesus does. Sadness can deepen our relationship with God like nothing else can. Because even when other people can't understand what we're going through, Jesus understands what we're going through. All of us are dealing with suffering to one extent or the other. And if you're dealing with suffering today, first of all, it's okay. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be grieved. Second, it's rarely simple. You, you might be filled with a flood of emotions and sometimes it's even hard to sort out what those emotions are. But during this time as we're living in this square of suffering, 
Let's be reminded that this time can be the time that we draw closer to God than we've ever drawn closer uh, in our life. Let's remember that as we're walking through suffering, God is right there with us as believers. Let's remember that God knows exactly what we're going through. Let's remember that God is near to the brokenhearted. But also, let's look forward with hope. Let us remember that the square is not the end. The square of suffering that we're in is only temporary. And pretty soon we'll see the grand story of what God is doing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you're near to the brokenhearted. We thank you that you're not a God who stands far off, separated from our pain and suffering, but that you're a God who is near to us, that you're maybe even closest to us when we're suffering. You know exactly what we're going through. You know exactly why we have to go through it, even though it doesn't make sense to us. And you see the big picture, even when we see only the square. Lord, as we're dealing with suffering today, Lord, I just pray that we would use it as an opportunity to draw closer to you, to rely and build our faith in you. And Lord, we just thank you for being with us, for your promise that you'll never leave us or forsake us. In Christ's name I pray.